Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to my Twitter at, at Focus Compound. Check out our website at focuscompounding.com. Um, uh, you know, we got YouTube videos. We have Spotify uh, clips or, you know, podcasts going back forever. Um, podcasts, pod, Apple podcasts, basically wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Uh, so check out all of our content. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompounding.com. You get more info on that at www.focuscompounding.com. Hit that invest with us tab. Um, so in today's podcast, Jeffrey, we are going to be talking about um, competitive analysis within an industry and you know deciding if an industry is settled, um, thinking about the competitive landscape, thinking about if this is something that we would be even interested in when we first look at a company. Um, but before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about markets as we've been doing on every single podcast. Have you noticed that our views have gone up since we stopped, since we lowered the frequency of how often we're uploading podcasts? Uh -huh. Have you noticed that? Why is that? Uh, People like the longer format. Is it because this turns us more into like a weekly show as opposed to just, you know, bang out a bunch of podcasts every single week? I mean, why do you think that is? It might be. Uh, it also could be that some people didn't just listen to one a week. You know, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not like the average. Uh, I'm talking like on YouTube, every single YouTube video now. Right. After a week and a half to two weeks, it's like 2000 plus views, something like that. Yeah. And then, of course, you got a bunch more on the podcast. I don't know. Side. It's possible with YouTube that having only one thing that's recent matters. People who YouTube things probably know that better. Uh, YouTube and Apple um, podcasts both do things based on uh, how popular something is within a few days of it coming out, mm -hmm. right? So if you, we would not only do several shows a week, we did them back to back. Yeah. So Tuesday, you immediately Wednesday, were Thursday. killing the fact that it was the most recent video. Oh, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, that has a significant impact on podcasts. Like you should space them out. I think on Apple, every fourth day would be ideal or something, probably the way that it works. I also wonder, because we've been talking about Activision and Tesla and Twitter, some more news-oriented things that are going on. I wonder if the algorithm's also rewarding us a little bit or more people are interested in that. Because I could tell from the comments that there's a lot of newer viewers that haven't followed us right. for some time. Well, our format now is more similar to other shows, right? Not really. I feel like it's more similar to how some things are on YouTube. That you talk about the... Um, like what's happening this week and stuff yeah, like that. I, yeah, I mean, I like talk. I mean, we talk about Activision, right? That's a special situation mm -hmm. that you would focus on. Stuff with Berkshire, Buffett buying Occidental, just things yeah. going on in the market, different, um, you know, merger arbitrage situations. So yeah, maybe that's it. But I think less is more apparently right now. I mean, if you read anything that talks about how to build a following, it's just repeat more, like do more work, put out you mm -hmm. know more content, stuff like that. But I also wonder if I would upload, let's say a podcast on a Tuesday and then a Wednesday, if some individuals maybe would just, I don't know, be reluctant to click on that uh, podcast because they know like another one's coming out on Thursday, where if they know that we only have once a week, for example, yeah. 
they are more inclined to watch it. I don't know. It's just interesting to see how that has played out. But people like the longer format. What are your thoughts on the longer format? Uh, it's good. It gives us some opportunity to talk about different things. Um, and we'll see how it evolves. It's yeah. so funny. Ever since we've been doing longer format, 30 minutes goes by within like a blink of an eye. Yeah. So like before we were targeting 30 minutes mm -hmm. and now we go an hour and a half to two hours to sometimes even above two hours. And I'm like, wow, that went by very quickly. I don't feel like, holy cow, I don't know what else to talk about. And we had to hit our two hour mark or our hour and a half mark. I feel like it goes by quicker. And I'm always thinking, how did we do just 30 minutes before? Like we must have really been rushing through it. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 Depending on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. So more on that and with recent people listening and following our podcast, for those watching on YouTube right now, you could see that I'm not in my signature black collared t-shirt. The amount of comments on last week's YouTube video okay. talking about my how much they liked your t-shirt. I'm also glad that you shaved your head again because a lot of they people, didn't care for the they, they're <laughs> like, I like the, the bald head, bring the bald head back. Mm -hmm. And they liked your t-shirt. But the amount of people that they uh, they like the bald head, and then Twitter had you know we're chasing ghosts here. They said, "Is this a coincidence?" If you're watching on YouTube, they said, "Last known focus compounding episode with a beard of Jeff." That was the market top. So it people are like, like, "Jeff, about, you know yeah. what? You know this is like with great power comes great responsibility." They're asking for yeah. you to grow the beard back out because things are just since you cut that beard. Yeah. The markets have sold off. Things are not going well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that? You're going to bring it back? What happened to the beard? It's so funny. When I actually go back and look at older podcasts, I was like, wow, he had a legit large beard. I see you often. So I just like, don't think about these things. But that's yeah. the beautiful part about camera. It's so funny to me. Like you look at our videos, diff just different like weight fluctuations we'll have mm -hmm. or times when we're tan <laughs> or times when we're not or just different attire, stuff like that. That's the cool part about I guess being on videos, you could go back and look at all these things. Yeah, and our early and our first, what, 100 episodes or something or no video? None. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember during COVID, one of our LPs and myself had a Zoom call and mm -hmm. he had a beard. And he was like, I think I'm, I'm trying to compete with Jeff for who could have the larger beard. And he had like a mountain beard as well. <laughs> uh, are you going to bring it back or is that just a COVID thing? Uh, well, I don't think it was a COVID thing. It's, uh, it's shaved head and, and no beard is the easiest to maintain. Yeah. Really? Cause I feel like shaving often is not easy to maintain. I feel like it's annoying. Uh, okay. Your yeah. beard. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. But if I didn't do anything with the beard, then you'd really see what the beard would look like. I was impressed. I don't even <laughs> think I could ever grow something that large. <laughs> it oh. would be. Yeah. Well, the people want it back because they're starting to speculate that you are the reason markets have sold off. And that's because the last known podcast with the Jeff Gannon beard was at all-time highs. Speaking of that, SP 500 is down about 14% year-to-date. We're just kind of jumping all within a range week-to-week mm -hmm. -week on these podcasts. 10-year yield, yield, though, that's jumped over 3%. So started, yeah. yeah, the last few weeks, yeah. So how often do you watch yields? I mean, what do you watch, I guess I should say, often? Well, I, I watch things based on um, the kinds of things we might invest in. Uh, so either things that we own, it might decide if we want to sell some, rebalance things, whatever, and things that we might buy. So things that are way out of the ordinary or that pose some risk that way. So like how far the S&P is down, I 
you know, I know yeah. because every news article includes <laughs> yeah. that, right? But uh, otherwise, I wouldn't normally know. Crude oil, not that important to us generally. I mean, we own one thing that has some crude oil. It's not a huge thing right now. Yeah. Um, but uh, mortgage rates would be really important in an origination activity and things like that. And uh, natural gas, because we own NACO. And natural gas also moved a lot more. Remember that NACO, um, just a couple quarters ago, you're probably going to call where it's at $3. Something like that. Uh-huh. $3. So, you know, it's a much bigger move. And what was it last quarter? Because, like, for instance, crude was, I think, a year ago, probably around 62, 65, something in that neighborhood. So it's only doubled crude, uh, whereas natural gas has tripled in, like, six months. Yeah, so in last quarter, they benefited from natural gas tremendously. And that was that natural gas at, like, what, four bucks, maybe an average? Right, and we speculate a little bit, whether on this podcast or just in general and stuff, about, like, they give some forward... Not exactly. Yeah, forward guidance. I would say guidance is actually the correct way of talking about it. Yeah, they, they don't predict what the earnings will be exactly, but they use words more in line with like how the Fed gives forward guidance, right? Mm -hmm, so sure. it would be moderately this, whatever. And I always wondered if they mainly use just the um, uh, prices for royalties and things of natural gas and and oil as of the day of the um, the uh, end, of, uh, not the end of the quarter, but the day that they file and stuff like that. And mostly they seem to do that. They do sometimes, like, there a few quarters ago or so, they gave some estimate that it might come down to be more in the average of what it was last year. Um, We're way but obviously that's that. significant. So, for example, they use um, – this is easy to do. They use uh, in their 10K – I don't know if we could find it. So, do you have NACO's 10K here? Sure, I, I could show you. This is not so much about NACO, but just in general so everyone knows they have this. NACO changed its um, accounting requirements or, or chose to or whatever, but um, there's an SEC requirement for companies that have a significant amount of um, material amount of reserves. So um, oil and natural gas, basically. Um, and so if you go to probably near the end. Um, Footnotes. It will be very near the end, but we might have to search for instead. It's the standardized... Um, uh, reserves, let's see, type in, try standardize and see if that is the easiest way to search for it. It might be in the table of contents, but I don't think it shows it there. there yes, go. standardized net cash flows. That's correct. Standardized measure of discounted future net cash flows. Okay, so this is a requirement that the SEC has, and they require that the same, uh, the same method be used for every company that does this. So it's important to know what the method is, because I see people talk about this and um, not people who know it well, like analysts, uh, but people just saying, well, what's the value versus for more for companies that have no nothing but reserves. Um, so the standardized measure uses um, they take their reserves, which you can see here. You see oil, natural gas. Yeah. And then what they do is they um, apply the same. They do two things with it. That's important to keep in mind. Uh, one is that they. Uh, use the 12 month uh, unweighted average is how they describe it. What that means is actually tell you exactly what it means. It's the first day of the month. So they take the price of the commodity, either oil or natural gas. And um, for on, you know, January 1st, February 1st, March 1st through the whole year, they add it all up and then divide by 12. Right. So that's what they mean. Um, sometimes that's significantly lagging. Right. So like for last year, if they're so what they're doing is they're not applying nine dollars and fifty cents to natural gas right now. If they can't with the for their guidance. Today, 
Well, I don't know about their guidance, but this reserve thing that we're going to use, um, which is going to show us $30 million is basically what NACO uh, reserves were valued at under this method. Um, there's other issues too, like the statutory tax rate. Is that really the tax rate that they pay? Things like that. But um, what they do is they do that, and then they also apply a 10% discount rate. So why that's interesting is, one, most people are going to be interested in what the price is as of today mm-hmm, and applying sure. that through instead of using the average. And it'd be nice if they actually gave what the average is, which they could do, but they don't uh, do that in this. They could tell us what it is and actually show us the last 12 days and stuff, that, 12 months. That would be a lot more helpful in this um, form, but they don't do that. And um, then using a 10% discount rate. The 10% discount rate is used regardless of the economic environment. So like 10 years ago, they were using a 10% discount rate for the SEC. Uh, but it's helpful because it allows you to compare reserves between all sorts of different companies. Um, so like in this case, let's say NACO has 7 million shares. It was valued at 29 million. It's probably worth a little bit more than that. Then already you could say, okay, well, it's worth more than $4 a share using that method. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that's at prices that are half the level of this or something. In NACO's case, not as significant because remember, they don't have costs associated with these um, royalties. So like a doubling of uh, oil or gas prices would really only be like a doubling of the reserves value, right? It wouldn't be that significantly different. Um, However, for other companies, like let's take the most marginal company. Let's say it costs you $40 a barrel or something. $40, $50 a barrel in the same place that the NACO is um, to get the oil. So those are your costs. So when you think about that, if they're using $60 a barrel, then it's saying that you're making $20 in profit. This is what's happening with the cash flow. But then if it goes to 120, now you're actually making $80 a barrel in cash flow. So it's, it's quadrupled instead of just doubling. So something like NACO, which has the widest margins, makes the least variation. So you could look at it and say, okay, it was worth 30 million then, it's now worth, you know, say it's worth 60 or whatever. But it won't go up by a much larger number, but something that was like, you know, um, uh, Canadian oil sand stuff, like that would go up by a huge amount with a small movement in the price because it has significant cost component to it, it's expensive. Um, so you can look at that. Uh, they have it for all these companies. I mean, they have it for everyone. Even uh, I believe Big Lari Holdings we mentioned in the last podcast. Yeah. So that's not a huge part of the company. They acquired one um, offshore oil company, but that in, they have to include this note. So it's a and let's see how far into it is it. This is this is F forty. It's pr- it's pretty far in the ten k. Like it would be very deep into the ten k that you'd have to find it. Um, so it's something for people to look at in all these cases. I don't know how good a valuation measure it is. Most companies have traded at um, well above their reserves. Some didn't. I pointed that out with a company we talked about a little bit that seemed really cheap on that basis, which was um, uh, California um, Resources, right? So that one had been like a, came out of bankruptcy, had warrants and things with it. That was unusual in that it went from the time it came out for many months i think it was trading significantly below what they were reporting their reserves were worth under this method and this method's a fairly conservative method especially if if oil prices are rising do you like their minerals management business i mean you're not in the business of speculating on natural gas and sure we follow the prices of these things but we're not looking at it like oh we think 
I mean, yeah, we're at this point, it's, oh, it's great. They're making hay. I mean, when you underwrote NACO or you thought about the valuation of the company, did you put a lot of weight on their natural gas business or is this just kind of been I didn't put weight, a benefit of the times? I didn't put weight on it, but I did know that they had a lot. And they briefly uh, made a bunch of money several years ago. And that's the last time that the stock went up a lot. Um, and that was as much from just additional production, really, because yeah. what had happened Initial was yeah, production because of their um, reserves in like southeastern Ohio, basically. What happened was before there wasn't really infrastructure to transport all that stuff. And so it was more all of those wells being completed and stuff being taken out more so than a rise in the price. Um, what I think I said before is what I got very wrong with NACO didn't predict could happen in and why the stock didn't do well versus the market for a while and would have been better to like the opportunity cost was high for us. We would have been better in a different stock is I did not envision a scenario where um, interest rates could be so low, the economy could be doing okay or good, and yet natural gas prices could remain so low. So two to three dollars a barrel, uh, uh, two to three dollars. Um, I did not imagine that happening at the same time that capital costs were so low. So what that means is, and this has completely changed, uh, but I didn't predict that that could really happen. And it's significant because like for solar, uh, which matters to a lot of companies, but wind, which matters much more to NACO. Um, those things are very tied to one materials costs because there's a lot of front materials cost stuff. So the huge inflation we've seen that matters. Uh, but the other thing is interest rates. So most of the cost of like, what is it going to cost you when you figure out, okay, how much is the cost per unit of electricity in those things over their lifetime is more similar to like a nuclear plant where it depends on capital costs and also just the material that goes into building it. So when commodities are very cheap and when interest rates are at close to zero, uh, wind and solar make a lot of sense. When materials costs are higher and interest rates are high, uh, they don't make much sense. And that was kind of what happened, you know, with nuclear um, when there was a lot of inflation last time. So nuclear peaked right at when there was pretty high inflation and, and didn't recover from that in the US, probably late 70s, maybe 79 or something, nuclear may have peaked. Um, and this is similar to that. Uh, so I I could certainly imagine a world in which, you know, commodities were cheap and uh, interest rates were almost nothing. But in that sort of world, I wouldn't have expected that there'd be much economic growth and those sorts of things. Uh, but there was. And so that led to what happened with after the pandemic, a completely different environment. But the environment before the pandemic and that go from the spinoff to the start of the pandemic was several years. Um, there really was not as much contribution from the minerals management stuff as I would have expected. I would have either expected that they get contribution from that or that um, wind wouldn't make as much sense. And they were kind of getting killed on both of that as everyone was retiring coal mm -hmm. and expanding wind and everything while at the same time um, there wasn't demand for natural gas. So that was odd, you know, that they were building all of this. Um, but that was an environment that existed for a while. It existed for much of the 2010s. And it was a bad environment for NACO. Um, I think the issue is this isn't much of a diversifying thing for NACO. So unfortunately... 
natural gas and coal are substitutes for each other um, across the United States. They're not specifically in Echo's customers' plants, but the choosing to use the customers' plants as opposed to some other way of generating electricity um, is a choice between using natural gas or using that coal plant, basically. And so the problem is NACO may do well in both categories at the same time and badly at the same time. So demand for coal may be particularly weak at the same time that um, natural gas prices are low and vice versa. And so it would be obviously nice if there was some diversifying aspect to it. Sure. Um, but it's not. They're basically a switch between the two. Natural gas is the marginal um, uh, fuel. Do you think there's been a regime change or is this more so just because of everything that's going on with Russia, inflation, all of those sorts of things? Or do you think there's actually been a regime change and higher natural gas prices are here to stay? Uh, I don't, Tough question. I don't know. Um, that's the right answer. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, this all relates to the things that we talked about with the Fed and all of that. Um, we can look at what the current policies are and the predictions for what the future will be. And if those things happen smoothly, then we can kind of guess what would happen. Um, I think that the current expectations for things like the terminal rate on the Fed funds and all that kind of stuff is not sufficient to bring down energy prices dramatically, to slow economic growth dramatically, the sorts of things that, that would be required to see the prices that we saw before. However, there's no reason to believe that they won't that expectations won't change in the future. If you have very high inflation, then you might keep having expectations change where yields keep going up further and further. Um, but certainly in terms of real rates, no, they're way out of what they need to be. So if real rates are significantly negative, then you're going to have probably high um, energy prices. Um, and this is the most since the period I was talking about before, since, you know, 40 years ago. It's probably more than that even in terms of the gap between what you'd expect the real rates should be and what they are. Um, although inflation itself is a bit lower than it was then. Um, so... We'll see. Right now, I think what's the expectation? Terminal rates three and a half percent or something. Mm -hmm. That compared to inflation, that's incredibly low. So that would be extremely easy policy. Um, like sticky inflation, which is what I look at, um, is like maybe four and a half percent or something. So we're talking about negative. Um, so what's that? Uh, the Fed tracks Atlanta Fed. I think tracks it. I, I use like just looking at the actual CPI going through the different components. But sticky price is just prices that are changed less frequently. So they do an estimate where, let's say, they assume the average price in the CPI is changed once every four months. They take only the things that change less than once every four months, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so some things change very, very. Um, so, for instance, rent changes about once a year. I don't know if it's once every 10 months, what the exact average is. But rent change. So rent is very sticky, whereas used car prices probably change once every two months. So they're not sticky. They change a lot. Uh, wages are pretty sticky. You don't change uh, wage rates that often. Um, some things are extremely sticky, and those would be services. So um, your dentist probably changes his prices once every two years. Um, you know, you don't change the price for haircuts, dentist stuff, um, things like that, pure service things. So, uh, but we've also talked about that with like the difference with um, a good example is like, let's take food. Food away from home at a restaurant changes very infrequently. A couple times a year, maybe. Even with plenty of inflation, like now, they're only changing a couple times a year. Uh, food at the grocery store for, like, meat and stuff is going to change as frequently as used car prices. 
once every two months or something. So um, a beer at a bar is a much better predictor of future inflation when at when put together with other sorts of prices like that than the price of chicken or beef or something like that uh, at the grocery store. That's useless for predicting future inflation. It's very useful for predicting um, pressure in terms of the cycle where you are. So like used car prices going through the roof, that's an indicator that you have a shortage. You know, beef prices is an indicator they have a shortage when that happens, uh, chicken wing prices, but they adjust very quickly back down. So other things we're talking about don't adjust quickly down. And it doesn't really matter um, the prices that spiked a lot and came and will come back down or not because they adjust all the time. But these other things will not adjust and they won't come back down no matter what for, for sure. So when I talk about things like Disney World and stuff like that, th that's not going to – those are very significant when those prices change. Yeah, and that's why inflation becomes a self-fulfilling thing and why it's so hard to tame and bring it back once the cat's out of the bag. It's like wages, for example. What are you going to roll back people's wages? Yeah, and actually the issue there is bigger because right now real wages are down which is what you don't want to see from yeah. when they talk about a wage price spiral. That's why it happens is because as real wages fall and nominal wages are rising, yeah, but, but real, real wages yeah. are falling, then people will try to get ahead of that and try to get higher real wages. They'll try to restore their wages to what they were before. And so you have that issue come up. Um, so because of that, you can end up with um, the need for higher rates in the future. And if you have higher rates in the future, then of course that can bring down demand for all sorts of things, but especially demand for uh, the energy things that we're talking about. And then also prices being this high for a while does help um, reduce demand for them. I don't know how much you can realistically reduce demand for natural gas in the United States. Um, a lot of coal was retired and there's a lot of um, environmental issues. So it may not be as easy to reduce as certain other things um, were. So there's a major reduction, you know, in, in oil demand in the United States that's been pretty permanent since the, um, since about 40 years ago or so when you had a energy crisis. Yeah. But that was pretty easy to do because that was heavily relying on, um, on uh, gasoline, on crude oil, on products from crude oil. Um, so that may be different than what we're seeing now. Cause like I said, what do you replace natural gas with? You replace it with wind and solar. They cost a lot to put in right now. Um, cause material costs are high. Even if you think about like, um, uh, trying to reduce use of gasoline, right? The problem with that, the trade-off with that is what have lithium prices done? What have the components that are in an electric car done? They're up even more. And that's not so good. And then also, if you have higher interest rates, um, interest rates being almost nothing is a helpful part of spending a lot up front for a car that reduces your use of the fuel. Works just like when we're talking about like nuclear or those sorts of things. You have capital costs up front, but it makes a lot of sense because your, your fuel cost when you have something that's a lot of capital is effectively the cost of the capital, whereas something else your cost is the fuel. So you get an electric car, you avoid having to spend on fuel, but you're paying more money up front mm -hmm. and you're having significant depreciation. Well, what's the cost of that? It's basically interest rates. So if rates are near zero and there's a lot of inflation and things like that, then that's great. You come out ahead. Um, if rates are significantly negative, 
But then if they're not significantly, uh, real rates are significantly negative. But if they're not, then you don't want to do it. So like if money's tight, then people are less inclined to buy expensive cars up front to save on, on fuel in the future. So the answer to all that is it's hard to know. It depends on interest rates in the future. That has a significant that that's a significant reason for why some of the things that are happening now are probably happening is because inter, because there were certain supply demand issues and interest rates are not kind of pushing against that in any way. So that's why you have those sorts of issues. Um, obviously, if you had much higher interest rates, then you you know um, NACO is helping to fund a lithium mine, basically fronting money. Yeah. If interest rates were a lot higher, would they front the money at the same on this you know same terms for like as many years as they're doing? If interest rates were higher, would that company that's building the mine have been able to issue as much stock, raise as much money? You know, so like how much lithium you have depends in part upon um, what interest rates were at. At some interest rates, the mine makes sense. At other interest rates, it doesn't make sense. And that's a mine that will exist for 20, 40 years. Um, but it depends on interest rates existing at the time. And they may, you know, right now it makes a lot of sense. But if you raise rates to the point where you um, bring inflation down to their target, then maybe some of these things don't make sense. Maybe not as much of this. Um, green energy stuff makes sense in that world um, without other, you know, without like say government doing it instead of the private sector. So how do you fix the current issues on the horizon and the issues that are presently taking shape? What do you do? You bulker it and jack rates up like crazy. Um, how do you bring oil back down? What is Jeff Gannon, the head of Let's call it the head of the free world, and you're going to use your executive order power to make all these changes. What are you going to do? I uh, don't have an answer to that. I would say that the main thing is I don't know how important is the rate at which rates rise. The thing that I see that's a potential issue is the ex the market's expectation for where rates end up. Sure, yeah, is not consistent with what we're seeing right now. It's not consistent with getting down to the Fed's target at all not close so either the market expects the fed won't really do that yeah and they'll live with much higher inflation which some people have talked about before that their inflation target should be higher it would make it easier for them to avoid a zero percent rate if they said our target is four percent instead of two percent that's an extreme example most people would say three instead of two but let's say four instead of two that gives you more room in a situation like 2008 or something like that they would have liked to have taken rates further negative than they did they couldn't because they won't really take rates negative in nominal terms. So if inflation was always running higher, then it makes it easier. So maybe they'll make an adjustment that way. Maybe some people expect that. Um, that's a possibility. But the other possibility is that the market expects certain things about demand to cool down on their own. You know, and that's possible. We don't know what's happening in China. Maybe things will cool down from that. Maybe things will cool down from other factors. Um, they, they expect lots of supply stuff to happen. Um, most of that stuff doesn't, the supply stuff doesn't make that much sense because the sh supply we're short of in the United States is labor. The problem with that is if you add labor to the workforce, they're then employed and making money and demand rises, you get very little benefit from that. It's not like bringing other kinds of supply. Additional labor supply adds a significant amount of consumption demand so there's very little benefit like of supply in excess of demand that you're adding to the economy so it doesn't really solve that problem like labor 
that that's very hard to solve the problem with labor that way. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> a lot of the things can also be done by um, government policy. Sure. Yeah. And a lot of those could be done instead. You know, like I said, like, I mean, obviously government policy for energy things, they can do whatever they want. If they're willing to spend enough money on it. Then any of these things can be made economical. You know, the c- countries spend a few percent of GDP on on defense. The private sector doesn't decide to do that. You know, the government decides what they want to spend in terms of how much defense they need. And then it works its way through from that. Um, you can do the same thing for energy. So like these things where you talk about hitting their goals for all this stuff. You know, I don't think it has to depend on a certain interest rate or something like that. The government can certainly have policies for that, tax policies, spending policies, um, all that kind of stuff to to shift to take resources from one part of the economy and put it into the green things that they want. Do you think the current demand destruction will hit the price of homes? Um, Seems like that's been the only thing. Now we have also record low inventory, but that's still the only, I don't want to say it's the only, but it's still a part of the market that really hasn't experienced too much of price destruction. The current mortgage rates are not really sufficient with the current levels of inflation to dampen demand for um, homes. And so it's an interesting question. Uh, I think people will get scared by the fact they're higher rates. And when that happens, just like when it happened with used cars, it slows down actual activity. Um, But like I said, let's say sticky inflation is more than um, uh, 4% or something and use that as more the number than the CPI or something like that. Um, if mortgage rates, you know, you need mortgage rates over six and a half percent or something before you even are at a neutral type level. And in fact, you need them quite a bit higher than that. So unless you're gonna have seven to 8% rates or you're gonna bring down that level of inflation a lot, it's not that, um, it's not that worrying a uh, issue. It is unaffordable. Right. Mm-hmm. Which will slow demand in theory. Well, see, that's interesting. We'll see. Uh, there, This is some of the worrying things about inflation. What would happen if you had higher inflation expectations for a long enough period of time? Or, or even let's not even say that. Let's say if you had truly negative real rates, you significantly distort. If, uh, that's maybe too pejorative a word. You, you shift how people spend their money. And people would be willing to allocate much more to a home mm-hmm. than they would to other things in that environment. It might even mean spending less on consumption and putting more into a being able to make your mortgage payment just because you realize how how um, attractive a rate you're getting is. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? So you either have to bring inf- inflation under control or you have to have much higher rates or whatever. But, you know, if you if, if you're getting money at 0%, then it makes a lot of sense for people to um, to speculate sure, in a home yeah. instead of renting. And it's purely a speculation that way, but I it mean, makes sense. Is that, that what created the speculation boom in the market as well? Um, well, I think there are also issues that we're significantly undersupplied with homes the last 10 years. That's correct. Yeah. We've underbuilt. Yeah. So I think that's a major factor. But is that an aftershock of 2008? Um, well, I think there's stuff having to do with, um, demographics and with people's, um, 
moving forming families and moving out, which I think is most significant. So I think unemployment was a bit higher and um, people uh, living in larger families in some cases was a bit higher than it would have been. Um, and I think that is an aftershock of the recession. Um, it's expensive to buy a home as a first time buyer. Yeah. Uh, it is. But it's also expensive to buy a stock and it's very expensive to buy a bond. Sure. Yeah. So um, if you're looking on the screen right now, I have a chart uh, current valuation relative to long term average based on forward price to earnings ratio. Um, I just pulled this. I mean, we like to look at the Schiller PE, but I pulled this from the Daily Shot, which is a daily publication that Jeff and I like to look at to get just economic data, everything that's going around the world. But you're right, though, about stocks being expensive as well. Yeah, it's really an issue of like the carry, you know, it's there's not a significant cost to carrying if, if real rates don't change. Um, in theory, things like um, whether you should buy a home or not, and things like whether you should own gold or not should be significantly related to real rates. And um, they're usually volatile, but they right now the price is very high and affordability is very low on the other hand being in the asset is more favorable than it's been in the past looking forward um so those things kind of have to weigh against each other so what do you do as a hedge against inflation have you seen this this popped up on twitter last week the security i like best by warren e buffett this looks like uh what was this 19 55, I think, and he's pitching an oil and gas property management company. Okay. Have you ever read this article? I've not read this. So one. I'll have to send it to you. But it's interesting because we've talked about what Buffett has done in his his personal account mm -hmm. and how he's always had, it seems like he always kind of dabbles in oil in some capacity, but there's an actual article that somebody posted that he um, wrote in a newspaper, The Security I Like Best, same title as when he wrote up Geico. See, this is Value Investors Club before Value Investors Club was even a thing, Jeff. This is what they did. Um, but Oil and Gas Property Management, Inc. Interesting, mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. Yeah, he did a few of these, right? Yeah. And recently, obviously, his investment in Occidental. Yeah, he has a mixed record in terms of um, investments. He's always worried about inflation. But Buffett has a mixed record in terms of investments having to do with commodities. Some of the record is very good, but some of it is significantly um, opportunity cost stuff. He would have been better off making larger investments in some like media and advertising and things like that, um, insurance even, than he would in uh, some of the materials related stuff that he bought back in like the 70s and eight, early, very, very early 80s maybe. But he basically stopped doing it um, around that time. So when inflation was taking off, so it looks like – 65 to, I would say 82, but, you know, maybe 83 or something is when inflation um, reached a lower point and the interest rates reached a very high point with Volcker and everything. But um, starting in around 65, and Buffett is um, around that time, what, he's wrapping up his partnership and all that, mm -hmm. not long after that. Um, you have significant inflation um, pressure, and then sometimes actually significant inflation. And I think as we talked about before, in each of the next see three recessions or so that they had after that inflation's higher during each recession which is what you don't like to see 
And that's the thing that we'll we'll see, you know, this time how that goes and everything. But that would be the thing that might be concerning to the market and might change things would be is if you have inflation not that low while you're in recession. If you don't get it down as low as you might expect during a recession, that might change expectations longer term if that happened. That's what happened then. Although inflation came down with each recession, it was higher at the bottom of each recession as you went on during those mm-hmm. 15, 17 years. Hmm. I would love to look at his personal account and what he's done through the years. Well, and that's another one. He he speculated in, uh, he bought a huge silver, right? Yeah. For Berkshire, he bought a huge amount of the silver supply. Um, he's did invest in uranium penny stocks back in the fifties, probably maybe early sixties. Um, and he probably did some like futures trading stuff. Yeah. What do you think he's doing <laughs> with futures? Well, Just, I mean, it's a very levered way to play these commodities. Well, we know based on the silver stuff, it's basically looking at supply and demand. I was going to say, so he's literally playing the price movement. It's not like he's saying, okay, I have a view on, um, you know, oil, like what he did with Occidental. I'm going to purchase a company based on what I think its future cash flow will be in Occidental. Maybe which came from the viewpoint of higher oil prices. I mean, he's literally buying the future. So that's just strictly speculating about the price. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we don't know the details on that. Um, his investments in real estate, for the most part, have been pretty good. He's made them so rarely, mm-hmm. but he seems to have always made them at a good price. If we ever had dinner with him, if we bid at the auction yeah. for the charity dinner and we won it, that is what I would ask a lot of questions about. I mean, we all know what his public record is, everything <laughs> that's there's so much written about him and things he's done and stuff like that. I would ask a lot about his personal account and what he has done through the years. That's a good question, yeah. I mean, some of it we know is arbitrage stuff. Some things that show in the personal account were REITs. Um, some were obviously arbitrage related to like bankruptcies and, and, and things like that, liquidations. He's definitely done that in the past. Um, and even inside Berkshire, he's done that from time to time when there's opportunities in, in merger arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you saw that recently with him getting involved, you know, with Activision stuff. Yeah. And that was an area that is dead for long periods of time. You know, he did it in the 80s for a while until the end of that boom, because then it got, there were not attractive spreads and the prices were crazy. But earlier in that LBO buyout boom, um, there was a lot of merger arbitrage that you could do that would be attractive. And he did that and then backed off of that. But he even wrote about, I think, Arcata. Yeah. And what else? Some other one. So that was the one that was the um, forestry one, where it's sort of like a contingent value right situation. So, um, so he's definitely invested in complex deals that way. I mean, when much he was more at, active in his personal account, it sounds like. Yeah. And we know when he was at Graham Newman, his job was to do the Rockwood, um, uh, arbitrage, mm-hmm. but for his personal account, he didn't do it. He just bought it outright Yeah. instead of hedging it with the, with the prices, um, to make a small spread. He instead kept it in the uh, purely in the common stock, his own investment. I believe it was the snowball. They talked about his personal account a little bit. So he went back to uh, Omaha, started up his first partnership. And we all know what his fee structure was. He didn't charge management fees. It was all performance. I think he viewed it as he needed to make income mm-hmm. in some form. And he used his personal account to do that. Mm-hmm. I would guess special situations in the early yeah. days. Yeah, I would guess special mm-hmm. situations personally. So we've been talking a lot about the Twitter deal yeah. with yeah. Elon Musk. Elon Musk ran to terminate his deal to buy Twitter in a letter accusing the company of not complying with his request of data for data on the number of spam and fake accounts on the social media platform. So 
Sounds like where we stand right now, Elon does not want to buy Twitter mm-hmm. or he does not want to pay the $44 billion price right. that he offered and inked the deal on. Um, Twitter is, you know, kind of back below or to the area, I guess, still where Elon said that uh, or news came out that he was, um, you know, buying stock and stuff like that. What's the uh, market cap on Twitter right now, though? Market cap. It's Right. 30 billion. Yep. And the offers for how much? 44 billion. 44 billion. And what's the breakup fee? A billion. So it's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's about what, 7% or something to, mm-hmm. yeah. So what happens? I always they feel like the breakup like the deals death? are not, the, but it works. It rarely is a problem, but I always feel the breakup fee should be much larger to get people to go through. But Elon Musk is showing that he'll really do that. Mo- most companies won't go through with that to take that loss on that yeah. size. But um, of course, Berkshire got money that way. Yeah, Berkshire got money that way where they had to be paid off. Um, if you think about it, he was able to sell some Tesla, liquidate I, some shares at what he knows is an inflated price, and he pays a billion. You're like, well, well you whatever. get a, it basically. I mean, this is what they're trying to avoid with it's these not like an EPS um, or charge or anything like that in a public company that's going to sell your stock. I was like, whatever. Right. So, and if it had gone up, then you know, you'd either go through with the deal. Or someone else would come along, you get out because the deal would fall apart and it would have gone up. Um, yeah, I don't think it's that crazy. I guess people hate losing a billion dollars or something, but a billion dollars, like I said, is a small percentage of the the move that can happen in a stock. And by the way, that move is happening with some chance that he could still close, mm-hmm, right? Sure. So presumably, Twitter would be even lower if there was no chance that he yep. would, that you know if he had never made this offer the the gap would be even bigger than it is now presumably and when you can see that from peers that have dropped i was even gonna more. say we can yeah, look at facebook and snapchat and stuff. because remember they can't even if there's sort of like when they say the market is counting on this percentage chance that this will happen and everything um you have to be a little careful that because there's a limit to how much you can arbitrage this is a big gap this is a big company so like one um firm it, it, you know one trader one firm is probably uncomfortable using the amount of capital and ha- risking how much you could lose um, to close the gap. So you need a lot of, it's it's harder to arbitrage certain things than people think in the market because you need a lot of uh, people all thinking the same thing. Usually these gaps are too big for someone, even if they believe this is the best bet they could make. Say someone says being short Twitter is the best bet you can make right now. That's true, but the sort of the risk management might cap them at such a low uh, level relative to Twitter's total market cap that it's actually hard to push the price down as far as where they think it should be. You know, so you need a lot of a large consensus so that you can spread it around in terms of, you know, because you might not be willing to put a lot of your portfolio in one thing or there aren't people with portfolios big enough. Berkshire is unusual, right? Like even the Activision deal, Berkshire alone, it bought up a lot of that stock. Most places won't do that. Take that big a position on mm-hmm. one deal that way. So presumably it'd be even lower. Yeah. So you're comparing it there to what companies? So we got Facebook, I believe, is in green and Snapchat is in blue, but Twitter's down eight percent year to date, Facebook or Meta down forty-two percent year to date, and Snapchat's down sixty-eight percent year to date. So this right. kind of just validates what you just said on, well, if uh the deal wasn't going on. You can make a case for Twitter stock being a lot lower than where it's currently trading at. Right. I mean, and I think, I mean, that is true. If you think you're taking a uh, $15 million loss by doing the deal, 
14 million dollar loss whatever it is um then taking one billion to get out of it isn't that big a deal no and again he was able to liquidate some tesla stock mm -hmm. to do it i mean which i don't want to speculate but and there's some probability that if you say i'm going to terminate you get a uh, more favorable deal mm -hmm, that sure. probability can't be zero it could be really low but it can't be zero and if part of that helps you out um with getting a better price that's why I think that these breakup fees that are so small, in this case, this breakup fee is, um, you know, less than 3%. It's two and a fraction percent. That just seems like such a small percentage, mm -hmm. given how much a public company's market value will shift, that um, you, it's kind of not enough of a disincentive. You're not sure that it will really go through. So but it goes through way more than I would expect. I, that people do want to avoid the breakup fees. Will they spend the next decade in court working this out? Or is it basically, hey, here's a billion dollars and we go on about our business? You could do either. I mean, a, the the arguing over a billion dollars can pay for a lot of lawyers. Sure. So they'd be happy to do that. I don't know how much legal wiggle room there is here. Um, yeah, I mean, the issue with this one for me always has been I haven't heard a lot about other possible suitors right mm -hmm. so without that what's what are you arguing about you're arguing about whether i mean he can elon musk can do the deal or he can pay a billion dollars there's it's not twitter has very little to do with it and there's not a lot to argue about um that's why it's hard to do a deal when there's only one buyer mm -hmm. now is twitter still in play does that mean other I feel social like Twitter's media companies? Always been in play if someone wanted it i don't think they have very good defenses like would like a disney come along or a different private equity company like is the playbook there for value creation did elon lay out the playbook fire you know a half to a little bit more of their staff change some things with the algorithm make it a little bit better bring it public again i mean this kind of does look like the perfect lbo situation well okay maybe there are a few issues uh i agree with all that but there are some issues one for a major company it's incredibly controversial so they might not want to touch it that's true that's very true yeah so uh two there are antitrust issues uh or i shouldn't say antitrust as much as political issues so okay who would make a lot of sense to buy twitter the most natural buyer is truth social uh google <laughs> the second most natural buyer is facebook could they extract more value for it than what it's trading at very possibly would anyone want them to buy it what's the spec name of truth dwac okay <laughs> um would anyone want them to buy it at their company because it causes them a lot of problems uh -huh. right yeah it could cause them problems for the rest of their business i don't know that there'll be a lot of deals in this kind of area anymore i think that we've seen a lot of what would have happened and they wouldn't happen again in the future because of how much scrutiny there is mm -hmm. um in especially because of the people realize the value of it so this is much closer to like newspapers in a country that only has a few newspapers or a few tv outlets it becomes very politicized people don't want that someone to take it over who has a strong political view one way or the other they want certain assurances they'll be run in a certain way so i think you're inviting a lot of political issues so then then the natural buyer becomes someone who's financially oriented and doesn't care about negative publicity like in um private equity firm uh -huh. 
But that doesn't make a lot of sense because it doesn't generate any um, cash flows. No, you would have to and you don't have cut the bloat. necessarily a lot of background of the things that you need in terms of um, what needs to be done there. So oh, it's definitely interesting, though. I wonder if Twitter still in play, if somebody else will come in. But you, you make a very valid point that who would want to be on that stage and own Twitter? It would have to be someone like Elon that just is like, whatever. Well, and there's no one else like that. No. In terms of having that much personal wealth and wanting to do something like that. Other than Bezos. Bezos. Bought, bought the Washington Post, yeah. But what, he paid $250 million or something? And yeah. didn't he get a pension fund as part of it? Yeah. So. Um, Bezos is chilling on his, like, 20-decker yacht in the Mediterranean. Would he even want to subject himself to all that ridicule with Twitter? I don't, I don't think so. No. No one would want to do that. No. Um, but there's some companies that probably could make it more successful and make money off of it. But how much money would you have to make off of it? Let's see. Let's look at the overview of how much they're generating in sales and things like that. Yeah, it's a little tough. But say it falls apart. Say it gets down to uh, 30% lower than this. Say it's $20 uh, billion or something that you could buy it at. Um, yeah, I think financially it makes sense. If you get it for $20 billion, yeah. Yeah, I do think so. Crazy. We'll uh, continue to follow it. So uh, we can go over an email um, from a listener to be able to have your email potentially featured on the show. You could email it to me at andrewatfocuscompound.com. And in the subject, just put podcast. And what we do is we cue them. And then I just pull one for the show that I think would be great for other people to hear. Just basically, I try to group it together based on other interests as well. Uh, somebody says, I just listened to your latest podcast with Andrew. Another great one. Keep up the good work. I usually remove the pleasantries, but apparently I didn't. <laughs> Around minute 50, you mentioned that you want to know if the capital allocation has created value or not. I was wondering, how do you do this kind of exercise practically? Do you look at the increase in book value slash equity over time and compare that to the average return on equity? When book value increased far less over a certain period of time compared with historical average return on equity, I suppose that is a sign of bad capital allocation, right? Or do you have a different approach? So how do you judge if capital allocation has been worth it at a company? Um, if it's created value. And I think you're going to say what Buffett has said, but maybe we could practically look at this. That You mean that this it's added more than uh, $1 to the yeah. market? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it should add one, more than $1 to the market versus each dollar retained. There are some issues with this. I mentioned retained earnings. People ask about this all the time because there's no way to do this in the modern economy, really. Companies buy back their stock. There are other issues involved. It used to be, if we were looking at this in the 50s or something, it was very easy, even through the 80s for a lot of companies. Um, it was very easy until the last 30 years to evaluate how much retained earnings a company had and how much um, and what the stock price was. So as an example, if we go to um, QuickFS, let's see if we can find this one. Type in STRT. We'll see what the price is right now. So it says the market cap is 132 million. This is Stratic Security. Uh, it's featured in Joel Greenblatt's uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. It was a spinoff from Briggs and Stratton about, uh, what, 25 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And um, this so it says market cap is 132 million. If we go to balance sheet and then we go 
quarterly. We'll see this. You'll notice an issue here. Near the bottom, you have uh, below total liabilities. You're going to have items like paid in capital, all of that stuff that you used to see. Um, the retained earnings are 241 million. The market cap is only 130 million. So this company has retained more earnings than it's being valued for in the market. So obviously, each dollar retained by this business has led to less than a dollar added um, to its market cap. Is that justified? What does that mean? Um, if we look at the overview again, we can see if maybe the market is mispricing this company or something like that. So we can see price to book is at 0 0.6, and that's the issue here. So first of all, anytime a company is trading below retained earnings, that's interesting to me because it is a potential sign of a true value stock because it means that it's at a price to, it has to, by definition, be at a price to book less than one, basically. But in addition to that, I mean, pretty much there, theoretically, there might be some way that you could have started the company with negative capital, but it's just not possible, really. So it's, it's going to be at a price to book less than one. Um, so a price to book less than one means it could be a net net, it could be a sub book value bargain. Um, that's your traditional sort of value things. But I don't really like the risk that a company, say, was created as a SPAC or something, lost money forever, and is now below book. Well, it never made any money. This company has actually generated and retained over $240 million. In fact, in, over its history, we know it's probably earned 300, 400, because we also saw that it bought back $120 million or something in treasury stock. stock yeah. yeah, so there are other factors in there. So, uh, but the issue is that when you looked at paid in capital, it was like 100 million. The market cap is only 132 million. So it seems like it's retained all these earnings and it hasn't actually turned into stock market value. Uh, and so that's kind of the extreme example of what would it look like if a company was doing that and it wasn't showing up in the um, market value. And we could look at the chart to show some things. Um, it, this is a more recent issue of the last 15 years or so with this company. I think if we have a very long chart, you can see that it, it's been a bad performing stock for a long time, right? It didn't look like a bad performer until the peak in the um, market for like cars and especially trucks and things they make a lot of money on. And so when that turned down, they haven't really had a lot of success since then. Although apparently in 2015, something happened there. Huge spike. Yeah. So um, they've often been presumably uh, below their value of the retained earnings, but it's an issue that's turned up in the last 10 years or so. So then it's a question of whether that's justified. You want to understand the like what really happened. Cheap. Yeah. So if we look at the quick FS again, we can see, okay, so what it, did it add to book value over time? Did it add to their earnings? We can see the issue here. Return on equity. Uh, the 10-year median return on equity is 8.2%. Right. So what are the issues here? Well, it's not really much of a re, um, return on invested capital issue. Might be slightly. It's 7%. But that you'd think would give you a price to book of like one or something because you leverage that up somewhat, especially given the last 10 years were very low interest rate, low return sort of environment. So one, it's not applying enough leverage might be the issue. Maybe other um, auto parts makers apply more leverage. Two, it just doesn't have very good returns on invested capital. So that might be the other issue here. And then three, it might be undervalued in the market. 
it's hard to tell. Um, it is, let's see, peak earnings were happened in 2021 and they were almost $6 a share. Is that right? Or did they happen earlier than that? That's basically the peak. Yep. Um, so it's only valued at five and five times, five, six, let's say six times um, peak earnings, but it lost a lot of money during the pandemic. And then it's valued at maybe 10 times what it was making before the pandemic. Yeah, if you average it out, it's about 10 times. So maybe the issue is it's priced at only five times peak earnings, 10 times um, earnings of the last 10 years on average, or that it has an EVD, but of four, right? So if we say, okay, let's let's double that and say this thing would have priced at an EVD, but of eight. Okay, we do that. Then we say, okay, well, the market cap would then go to 260 million, which is actually less than the retained earnings. Still, there was original capital in this business, so it still wouldn't have added as much value as it had uh, each dollar of retained earnings wouldn't have added another dollar of value to it. If you get to like 12 times EVD, but then you say, okay, if it's always going to be priced at 12 times, then maybe you have created value. But if it's only going to be priced at eight, it really hasn't. And four, obviously it isn't. So you would just say how much EBITDA did it create, how much sales, how much earnings for the dollars it retained. Um, so to dis distinguish between whether this is just a cheap stock or a company that hasn't actually generated value you would just go and look at like the return on equity, what they're doing, do basically your own business analysis to uh, decide if it's really, you know, a crappy company or a value stock. Right. And then there's the issue of evaluating the actual capital allocation. And here I think it's interesting. It's too complicated for us to get into, but I think it's kind of interesting in that I think that the overall environment in which they were found themselves is more the issue here than the capital allocation of the last 10 years. They invested in a bunch of things around the world because what happened is this company was the major supplier to um, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. And so their market share declined over time in the United States, and that was basically what their business was. So it may not be the uh, fault of management that their returns were so poor in the last 10 years because what were the returns of um, GM, Ford, and Chrysler in the last 10 Very years. Very poor. All right. Um, and so that may be a major factor in it, that their their market share declined in the U.S. And so their investments were in like joint ventures and stuff around the rest of the world. You can see that their sales did increase, but then how much did that drive gross profit? It actually drove a decent amount increase in gross profit, but... Jumps all over the place. Yeah, well, I mean... Which is the nature of what they're doing, right? Right. And to be fair, it jumps more in the last three years or so. If we excluded that, yes, it does jump around, but it wouldn't look as extreme to us because those years should never happen. So 20, 2019 for this company, I'm not sure what exactly that fiscal year is. It might include part of the pandemic, but let's say it doesn't. 2020 and 2021, those are outside the bounds of what they should normally look like as a company. Um because you should never have a year as bad as the pandemic and you should never have a year as as good as the one after that um, because of, you know, you're a, a part supplier. So basically what happened is you ended up with um, uh, too few cars being made, mm -hmm. right? Because they get paid each time the, the parts used. Um, so that's one way to look at it. Other ways would be like... Um, uh, if we, so it, that's one that's kind of, I don't know if it's exactly obvious, but you can run a screen to see what's trading below retained earnings. Um, retain, another one is just anything below price to book of one. Um, Carmart we'll use as an example, cause that's a good one. Cause it's fairly, 
Uh, price to book is 1.5 times. You could see whether you think that they've created value over time. Obviously, the stock's up a huge amount. We did that chart before. We don't yeah, have to. It's chopped. So it's a huge one. Um, I'd say it gets more controversial that people have on ones. So like those are obvious to them. Uh, we could do investors title insurance. That's one where people argue about whether they've really created value or not. And oops. Um, oops. There we go. So it's trading at a little bit over price to book. It's about 30% premium. Return on equity is about 13% over the last 10 years. That doesn't capture everything about it. So let's put in ITIC in the um, you want a chart. chart. And then we'll do one other one that is a little more complicated. The ones that are simple are anything where it's all showing up in earnings per share, right? So if it's all sh showing up in earnings per share or all price to book, that can work. So I think I said that about like banks or something. If you want to use price to book, um, you could chart it against the S&P if you want. Um, if you want to use price to book or something like that, you can. The change in price to book should be fairly decent uh, guide to whether they've created value over time, right? Um, and taking into account the fact they pay dividends, right? So what their comprehensive income is. But for a lot of companies, it'll just be the increase in earnings per share uh, that will guide you that way. So as you can see, investor title insurance has done better than the market if you've held it for you know the last um, what is that thirty years. Um, and that, that helps give you more of a guide than just what the 10 year return on equity is because it incorporates more the um, uh, boom and bust in housing. The other one I was going to say is we could look at Flanagan's BDL. This one's confusing to people because the reported earnings are unusual uh, because it has, it's almost like a NACO type situation that it has um, unusual. Um, Ownership interests in, in different things, uh, minority interests and things like that uh, have to be accounted for. So the other issue that it has, though, is that it's been buying land under its um, restaurants. It's basically been buying the, the restaurants. Um, so that's a use of capital that reduces the leverage, but also is kind of like having a lot of equity in a house versus having the minimum amount of it in it. It doesn't really show up in terms of the earnings and stuff, but it actually might mean the company has a lot of room in terms of... Um, cap allocation, right? So let's look at this company on a long-term chart. This is trading at book, so that should make it pretty easy, right? It would be hard to say that it's expensive. Maybe some people think it is, but it's about one times book. It's about, according to Quick Assets, it's like five times earnings, Yep. right? Um, five most of the measures, it's 11 times book. free cash flow. It's not leveraged unusually for a restaurant. In fact, it's got less leverage than usual. So we can then compare it to the S&P and see what it looks like. Right. Huge so, difference. So for people listening over this um, 30 plus year chart, uh, BDL's total return or price return, I should say, 3,059% versus the S&P of 900%. So I think that's useful because the issue that you might find with this is saying, okay, should I buy this company or not? The argument people will say is it's always cheap. It doesn't create value. It's a value trap. You could say the same thing about, some people would say about investor's title. If say, now you're paying a slight premium, so you're paying like a 30% premium. But if you weren't doing that, you would say, um, these are stocks that we're talking about that are in the range of like five times earnings, one times book, one and a half times book. The kinds of things that people would say are value stocks where they're not creating value. Uh, even Carmart that we looked at yeah. is fairly cheap on those measures. We don't know what the future will hold. 
But there's not justification based on the past record to think that these things should be valued at lower multiples versus the uh, market. Now, you could see they might have started at very, very low multiples. But even if you started at very low multiple 30 years ago, actually, it would be very hard to beat something over 30 years based mainly on valuation. It's still trading at six times earnings, too, or one times book. Yeah, and it's trading at, what, half times sales, right? Yeah. Um, and then even on an EV basis, 0.3 times. Right. But this is the kind of thing that you get a lot um, uh, of an argument about whether they've created value or not. But it's a tricky one because if you look, right, if we look at the quick FS, it would show up as saying it doesn't create enough value. The 10-year median return on equity is 8 to 9%. Return on invested capital is only 5.5%. Those numbers are too low. And so people would be inclined not to buy it and to say that it's not creating value. It's hard to argue that it hasn't created value, though, if your stock is up that much over that long period of time. And that would be true whether it's Carmart, Investor's Title, Flanagan's. If you have stock outperformance over 30 years or something, um, then it's hard to argue with that. So why the discrepancy? Is this a situation where you like it because even without multiple expansion, you expect there to be great returns over time? And if you get the market, the multiple expansion, then that's just the cherry on top of the cake. I mean, why the discrepancy between those two things? Oh, well, their accounting is pretty complicated. So that's one factor. So it's really more of a an accounting thing that, so maybe BDL yeah, doesn't show up on screens. We could look at their screens. balance sheet too, um, or cash flow. Either one will help us with this. So if you look, you'll see. Um, yeah, they have like different partnership interests and stuff like that. Right. But if you look, you'll see that. Um, there's an issue that retained earnings has gone from 17 million to 51 million. It's a great issue, Jeff. Um, right, but that's a tripling. So 17, 34, 51 is triple. And yet um, they've only doubled things like EBIT and other numbers that I was just looking at. They've doubled over that same period. So in other words, your capital intensity, you know, in terms of if we're using retained earnings as a uh, uh, guide to that, um, it has increased so that you're using a dollar fifty of capital to generate a one dollar gain. So over time, what would happen is if that's true, if you have to retain a dollar fifty to only create a dollar of market value, basically, then you're not creating value. The issue, though, is if we look at property, plant, and equipment, right? Yep. You see that number? Mm -hmm. We see cash. So, for instance, you see cash went from four million to thirty-three million. You see PP&E went from 26 to 86. Over 10 years for people listening. Right. The issues with that, um, and you see that long-term debt and capital leases went up. That's 27 million because the accounting changed for capital leases. So you had 27 million. And then you added 12 million to long-term debt over that time. So it's 39 million, so 40 million. But cash increased by, um, what is that there? 29 million. And PPE increased by sixty million, so significantly greater increase in cash and PPE than there is in um, uh, in the liabilities that we saw. And so we know where the retained earnings went. Basically, they've retained earnings to increase cash, although that's basically offset by debt um, and capital leases and um, PPE. The question then is what that PPE is, and whether it's similar to other um, restaurants. My issue with Flanagan's, uh, I don't know if this is good for the future or not, is that as compared to other restaurants, they uh, lease less and own more. And we don't know what that's all about and whether those things make sense, the investments that they've made in recent years. Um, but 
there's probably a significant amount of value that isn't captured on the balance sheet from what they're doing. Um, my suspicion then is that earnings have actually been um, higher to an extent, and they're cheaper to an extent than it appears. Um, so it says like price to book is one, P is six. I think they're actually cheaper than that. But I think offsetting that is that their investments right now, or they have been for most of the 2010s, are probably low return investments because they've been basically effectively either piling up cash, paying down debt, or um, improving and buying locations. So like when a lease runs out, taking over the location, um, investing in PP&E at the location, things like that. So you have to visit in person and see things about that. But that may make its liquidation value higher. So it could be that like liquidation value has been going up over time. The other thing to keep in mind with this company is they probably don't care what their stock price is. Management no. controls Control it. Company. Um, Family company. Right. They control all sorts of arrangements with it. It may be that if they choose to sell it, what does it matter what the price to book shows up as? It's just what the liquidation value is, what the value of it as restaurants are. They could probably sell it in an arrangement where you broke it up and you get to keep the real estate and someone else operates the restaurants or you operate the restaurants and you know the real estate gets broken off of that and it leases from the uh, real estate portion of it. There's probably lots of ways to extract value at the end. Uh, and so you always see those cases and that's an issue with any of these companies where uh, the price sometimes seems low, but management might own a lot of it and might not really care uh, what it looks like until the point at which they buy it out or they sell it off to someone or whatever they choose to do, because then you might get a really big um, premium then. So you go through, you compare. There's no mathematical way to do it. Because like I invest in IMS Health, right? So book value over time went from positive to negative. They create a lot of value. Why? Because free cash flow per share went up. Free cash flow per share is what matters. But then you get someone who says free cash flow per share matters. And that might be the case. But then when you're targeting that, you might realize that that's not the best number to use because maybe they're generating a lot of free cash flow right now because they're um, not investing in things they need to be investing in, right? So you have to judge against any of those. My approach for Carmart was always to use the receivables per share, so the loans per share. Um, I always thought that was the number that was most important over time. Because I didn't feel that changes in interest rates and things like that should have a big impact on um, my valuation of the company or just sales from uh, year to year. So it's basically what's your valuation method that you use? And then you have to apply that and say, okay, is it up or down over time so that your retained earnings have added value? Uh, a lot of times you kind of have to make an adjustment. Is Stratic probably valued a little too low by the market? Maybe. You would see that that bias might be there. Um, you can reverse in the other way for things that are kind of expensive, you know, but a lot of the more recent companies, of course, uh, recently public companies have not retained earnings. They've lost money. And so it's difficult to know whether they've created value. And it's just a question of what they spent on advertising and all those kinds of things instead of having earnings. Do you think you need like 10 years minimum to judge these sort of things? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No less than 10? Yeah, you, you'd, I'd say it's hard to judge in less than 10 years for over the entire company. And when you were talking about things like these price changes in the market and everything, yeah, I would say so. 10 years. Uh, but another thing is just to look at the logic of what they're doing and whether it makes sense to you. My feeling on this is the same as when evaluating like an investment manager or something like that. 
I don't actually think the pass track record is that important. I don't think it's important to measure the pass track record. How is the pass track record accomplished? Because I can't predict based on the fact that they did X percent in the past that they'll do X percent again. What I can predict is they'll probably do the same sort of thing. So can we predict that Frost will make however much money in the future as in the past? No. Uh, we don't know what the spreads will be, how much they'll make on that, what the leverage will be, exactly all these things. Can we predict that they'll probably have a fairly low loan to deposit ratio, that they'll probably do a lot of CNI lending, things like that? Yes, we can probably count more on their strategy being repeated. So when we look at the past track record of um, ARC, right, the, the ETF, you could have said, oh, I could never predict that it would go up so much, that it would come down so much, all these things. But you could have predicted the strategy. The strategy was pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the track record might lead you, if you look at a track record in terms of a performance track record, it could lead you astray. But if you look at it as a strategy track record, which is more important, that's what matters. And so I think um, the strategy track record issue is more like, will they buy back stock every year? How much will they buy back? Will they buy back about as much as they... Um, generating cash flow from operations. Mm -hmm. Will they do acquisitions all the time? You look at what the words they're saying are, how they talk about their business, but also what things they've done in the past. And then you think more about the strategy. So I've happily invested in companies that had poor track records in terms of value creation, if I liked their strategy. Because if the strategy is going to work in the future, I don't care that it didn't work in the past. Mm -hmm. I didn't own it in the past when it didn't work. We've used that example of Virtu Motors. Yeah. And how they've, they had a difference of how they looked at capital allocation and how we knew going forward would not be what they've done in the past when yeah. it comes to like issuing shares, buying back stock, stuff like that. Uh, we also bought NACO after they had um, made a mistake buying a mine, basically. And I didn't think they'd do that kind of thing again. But also when I say a mistake, like, it looked fine to me at the time. You go back, based on the numbers that you saw at the time, did this um, action seem like it made sense? Was it rational? Was it a possibility that this could have worked out all right for yeah, them? Yeah. Uh -huh. Then the fact that it didn't is not something that worries me a lot. Um, and then also just the fact that we didn't think they were going to do more of that. And we'll see. So far, we've been right with NACO and Virtu in the sense of um, uh, what their capital allocation has been. We could suddenly be very wrong on that. But we felt NACA wasn't going to invest in coal things, Yeah, mm -hmm. basically. And they were going to invest a lot in other things. They are going to spend a lot of capital on other things. We thought that Virtue was not going to issue a bunch of shares the same way that they had in the past. They might buy back shares. They were starting to do that. Um, and that's basically been true. And uh, that's based on kind of their strategy in the past, but also what they said, but also how that might change in the future. Um, so, so it's not fair in that situation to judge them as if the past is going to be the future then. Yeah, I just think that... The, like if you were to look at them and be like, oh, they diluted shares in the past to do these different deals, we should probably just stay away. Right. I mean, it's easier to solve for a negative. That is to say that it, we have no evidence of uh, an unusual situation here. So when we walk through things with investors title or Flanagan's or Carmart or whatever, if someone says at this price, this looks like something that is cheap now and will always be cheap. Well, it shouldn't be that hard to say, actually, based on the past record, there's not enough evidence to say that this is inferior in any way to other businesses. The stock is up way more than other businesses that... Um, the returns are not 
for most of them are not that different. There's a little bit of a, with Flanagan's a question of the last 10 years, especially in terms of the accounting uh, reported results. Uh, but for the others, there isn't. And so you shouldn't just have, you know, there's no evidence for it. And so basically it's a, some sort of prejudice or something that you're bringing to it that way. Um, but that doesn't mean the future won't be very different. NACO's past record's fine. Um, but there's always been hanging over the issue of what the future will be like. Yeah, sure. And Stratic had that issue, which if you, we looked at the Stratic's record pre-2005, like 1995 to 2005, the record would have looked good. But 2005 was basically the peak for the Detroit auto business in terms of things like trucks and stuff, which is how they made a lot of their money. And so it's been all downhill since then, you know? Um, and some people may have seen that coming. So that may, you know, the, the record doesn't tell you what the future is going to be. But in a lot of these cases, all you need to do is say, okay, I'm buying at a very cheap price or something. Have they at least preserved value over time? If you're paying a premium price, then you have to really worry about how much value they've created. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the track record, all these things like these serial acquirers, they should basically show every decade they're declining. I mean, here, let's, let's do Walmart so I can show you something with that. So Walmart has a terrific record over the very long term. But it's considered very good business and people think it, it has a lot of dominance and stuff. Um, there's no evidence in the last 10 years that the business model is working, that it's creating value, anything like that. So returns on equity are fine. Uh, returns on invested capital, the way that's measured here, are okay. Um, however, there's significant evidence that that's probably due to starting at high levels before. And so the average over time ends up being looking acceptable which is kind of what happens naturally with Kagers. So what you end up having is you can always say that my results since 1950 or whatever are amazing, but that's because your results from 1950 to 1960 were 50% a year. It's like fund managers like you know? that, yeah. And then it's been downhill since then, so you may have underperformed for the last 20 years. Walmart has clearly underperformed as a business for the last 10 years versus other businesses. It's not even close. Their revenue growth is weak, you know, 2 to 3%. 2.5, yep. Earnings per share growth is 1%. Um, there's been almost no years in which there are particularly strong returns on equity or returns on invested capital. Um, and the pattern that we can see is one of basically declining results since the, uh, while it was more stable before, you can see on the graph over there, um, they've somewhat been declining. So the return on invested capital started 20 years ago at about 12 and a half, 13%, something like that didn't show much of a pattern until about the financial crisis. And then since then has been, I would say weaker. The trend seems to be almost constant declines in it, um, which is probably a pretty powerful trend given that the amount of capital in the business added to it each year is very small and the change in the size of the business is very small. So there's a strong tendency for the return on capital to be the same each year. Uh, you know, you're not reinvesting large amounts. Um, you can see that gross margins are about the same. Operating margins are a little bit weaker now than they were in the beginning. It's not terrible or something, but it's very similar to the pattern that we see when we look at things like village supermarkets, stuff like that. We can compare it to some other companies, but example would be like uh, someone asked about Dollar General before. If we look at Dollar General, we can see uh, that the results, there you go, uh, look very different than Walmart's results, right? So revenue growth is much stronger, EPS, EPS is terrific, um, and you also have plenty of years where you have high returns on equity. But we can also just compare it to things like, um, uh, I'll show you what, so there, my point is there's no evidence in its modern incarnation that Walmart is a particularly good business model. It's a retailer. 
is it better or worse than Kroger or Village or something? I don't know. Um, it it doesn't seem like it has a better business model with its existing assets and everything than those kinds of businesses. Uh, we can show that Dollar General is a better business in terms of its model, but let's show one that's really a better business, Home Depot HD, because these are both in the news at the same time. This is an excellent business model. It's a business that's succeeding and creating a lot of value over time. Not only do you have high earnings per share growth, but you can see increasing returns on invested capital um, after the financial crisis. And the weakening in it was really due to a crisis in housing, which is what this company serves into. Um, the graph is helps explain this a lot. Look at that. Yeah. Right? So throughout this entire boom, it's growing each year. It's also important where it bottoms out. With a little bit of leverage, bottoming out at 7.5% is not even a problem. And this company uses actually quite a lot of leverage because of the way that things turn. So uh, uh, oper operating leverage, not a lot of financial leverage. So um, you just see a result that's very different. And it's important to look at that because someone could say, well, uh, let's compare the prices, for instance. Well, I should buy Walmart at the same price as Home Depot. You know, they're pretty similar. It would seem natural. Use it as a peer. But is this appropriate to use them as peers at all? Um, one company has grown, uh, you 8 know, 8% a year versus 2.5. I mean, what did the year. dividend go from? The dividend went from a dollar 16 in 2013 to, to $6 and 60 cents in 2022. Right. Yeah. So it's just very easy to say, oh, they're similar or something. And they bought back a good amount of stock. Right. So to think that they're similar or something. Yeah. So, so what's happening here? My suspicion, you know, with the history of Walmart is, that much of the things we think of as being very successful by that company were from the early years. Yeah. We've talked 80s, about that with 90s. Tractor Supply, Dollar General. I still think when I go to a Walmart that's truly in a super rural area of the country, that it's a great business. But I go and see it around here, Dallas-Fort Worth, I don't see a great business there. I certainly don't see something that impresses me relative to Kroger and Costco and the Home Depot and the other things that are in that same shopping center probably with it. Um, it really does not. I mean, we could even do Kroger so people can see just like Walmart's big groceries. Are they having success versus a company like that? That's sort of a best in class grocery business. Um, not really. Yeah, Kroger's return on equity numbers are better. Revenue numbers, Look at return share. Like the return on equity is yeah. terrific compared. It has, you know, the dividend's gone up from 25 cents it, to 78 It's a little cents. wobbly in the pandemic, right? And it has come down in terms of its results. You can see a weakening in its um, returns on capital in a decade that was very hard for supermarkets, right? Um, but again, it just there's not evidence that Walmart has a business model that is more successful than these other things that we've just looked at. It's of a big size, but it doesn't necessarily look a lot different mm -hmm, from them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the early days, it must have looked very different. And I think that um, that's why you have to ask with like the marginal investment looking forward is what are those things going to be? What does Walmart put in that looks like it's going to be a success? Uh, does it look more like the things that earn the highest returns for them now? What locations and everything? Or does it look like the sort of thing that's earning lower returns? And I think there's a long history of probably earning lower and lower returns on capital as Walmart has uh, gone into more stores and more places that each one has is, is got worse um, results that way. And that's watered down what actually is a very good core business originally as it's outgrown that. If Walmart was a $30 billion company instead of a $300 billion or whatever it is, um, it might actually have really excellent returns on capital.
but you just have to think that each of those additional ones have been less impressive to water down the results. Uh, and then you have to think about that with something like Dollar General, right? Because Dollar General is repeating a lot of the locations and things of Walmart. How many locations can you have? Where are they? Don't you get the same sort of issue eventually in terms of what your returns on capital are going to be in the future? You know, um, and that's just the question of how you create value. But if we look at the uh, stock uh, chart, we can probably do that for sure. Walmart. I don't know. This only for a quick half pass will only go back to the 90s, right? So let's see how yep. Walmart does there. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to look that impressive, actually, for the period that we have covered. Um, it will only for the very first part. So let's compare to the S&P. So as you can see, the results are very similar. Not exact, but very similar since the early 90s. Uh, in terms of price, this is what this is capturing. Um, but we could compare to like Home Depot. Yeah, yeah, big difference. So for people listening, it looks like um, Home Depot, the price return since the 90s, 4,173%. Um, I can't tell which one is, I believe, green. They're is, both in the 800, Yeah, 825%. Yeah. So, I mean, destroyed. Yeah, the price difference. But if we do, um, if you enter the date there, you can enter, and you do uh, January first, two thousand one, let's say, to today, I think that will significantly alter that. Yeah, so it's still outperforming, mm -hmm. but you'll see that the price is such a big issue for Home Depot there. So only recently, as a start, you know, in the last, uh, I don't know, what is that eight years or something, did it depart from it, but. Um, even though I think Home Depot was consistently creating a lot of value, the price got so out of line in early 2000s uh, that, you know, it, it has beaten it. If you held it for that entire period, it's still, you know, done well that way. But it is such a significant factor. And so that's why I would say you don't want to measure and say, oh, over the last 10 years, 20 years, whatever, Home Depot hasn't done that well. If the starting price is like 60 times earnings or something, mm -hmm. I forget what it was, but it was very high in the boom. It was really high for Home Depot, the multiples. So you want to avoid thinking about it in, in those terms. Um, but you just look at all those underlying things and see if you can see that it's creating some value, a lot of value. And it doesn't really matter how um, exact you are with it, right? We basically looked at Walmart and said, this looks mediocre in terms of the results that I'm seeing here. The cap allocation last 10 years, even if we looked at the last 20 years uh, in quick FS, you could do it. It would show that it just does not, it doesn't look like a lot of values necessarily being destroyed. But unless we're seeing underlying things going worse in the business, the cap allocation is not really working here. Um, then with the other ones that we talked about, strategic and stuff, you're debating, are, is it destroying value? And when you're buying something at less than a price to book of one, all you need to know is it's not going to destroy value in the future. Have some faith in that. Home Depot, now it becomes a question of like, well, how much can they reinvest? Because it can create a lot of value. That's the thing when we talk about over-the-counter markets or any of those. When you have a really good business model, it's just how much can they reinvest? Because we know that they're adding value with each dollar. So I'd say Walmart is a good example of like, literally i don't mean in, a, in a, a negative way or anything mediocre it is this is what a in a competitive you know capitalist environment what returns look like um 
And then on the capital that you've already deployed and they can't really shift to all sorts of different things. So that's kind of what it looks like. And then you look at a business model, Home Depot, that's creating a lot of value. So reinvestment in that adds a lot of value. And then you look at those ones, the deep value things we kind of debated about, they don't seem to show evidence that they're destroying a lot of value. Um, whereas there's probably some companies we could think of that actually over time, the value's probably gone down. You know, there are ones that are very hard. I remember we did um, ExxonMobil and talked about it. Mm -hmm. And ExxonMobil probably had a period of 15 years or something where they weren't getting good returns on their capital investment in the business. But that's a cycle that could last 15 sure, years, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. So those are very hard. I think today it actually hit a, um, I don't know if it was an all-time high or just a, a recent high, but yeah, Exxon's, yeah, looks like an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Which is on the backbone of higher oil prices, everything that's going on. Yeah, although they're only at about the price that they were at the last time that oil peaked. Uh -huh. Right, 2008. Yeah, and, and then also 2008. So it's, yeah. it's, it's so a right pattern. That is, this, we are is this seeing. a triple top? Is that what they we, call we it? We are seeing a pattern there. Um, uh, but if we look at the quick FS for ExxonMobil, we could see, um, here we go. Let's look at things like return on invested capital. You can see that um, a lot of these, they, they were, it was declining significantly during a lot of that period. Yeah, uh-huh. Right? And so now we're getting back up to a level that's strong, but that's hard to know the answer to, right? Because like the return on invested capital looks good. It's adding value. You retain earnings uh, in an environment of the, let's see, what is that? 2004, you know, like the early 2000s. It looks good. Even, you know, 20, like we were saying, 2012 or something, it might look okay. It doesn't look great, but mm -hmm. it looks okay. Um, but then after that, it doesn't. Outside of those points it really doesn't there's a few periods of three to five years in the last 20 years about half of the years it doesn't look like they're necessarily creating value but the problem is they made investments 10 years before that are paying off now when the oil prices are up or down so things like return invested capital are really confusing because it's not their investment now that we're getting a return on it's investment a long time ago and now depending on the price we're seeing very different results. So I think it's very hard to evaluate whether like an oil company is preserving value, destroying value. Yeah. Is it also hard because like the input cost is something that's super cyclical as well? You have to use a lot of judgment. There's yeah. some things that you could say, well, this, should they have bought this out of top in this thing or that? You know, how counter, how um, much are they contrarian with things? How much are they doing what everyone else is doing? You can evaluate that kind of stuff. But in terms of looking at the returns, it's really hard. Because look, in the pandemic year, no investment could have uh, paid off. And then, you know, maybe, you know, not being necessarily all that smart still would have made you a good return on investment in the early 2000s. And like going around right before the financial crisis, 2006, 2007, maybe everyone could have made money in oil then, regardless of kind of the projects you had done. So when you say this is something that you try to judge over like a 10 year period, mm -hmm. how do you foresee that far? Is it understanding what they're doing today to get to that 10th year where you're gonna look back and be like, yeah, they create a lot of value? Is it understanding how management communicates? Well, some are easier. So we could do, um, actually QuickFS has UK stocks, right? Cause you're logged in and everything. They do, right? yeah. So HWDN. HWDN. How do you join So here's an example. Um, I put this one in the same sort of category as CarMart. This could be potentially, except for the fact that they're both cyclical, um, the kind of thing that you could kind of look out 10 years. Because 
um, they open up new locations. And then it takes a lot of years for that location to perform in line with the past locations they had. So it's basically organic growth. Um, Carmart does acquire some things, but they're very small acquisitions usually. And then based on that, you operate sort of the same model over and over again. And then you try to give a lot of um, authority to the local manager. So the business model in a sense of how to joinery and Carmart, somewhat similar. You're repeating the same thing over and over again in terms of let's go to another town and put in this depot or this um, lot. And then we're trying to run the same business model in each of these. Uh, but then it takes several years to pay off as much as it would, uh, you know, to mature. So you're always in this point where it depends on how many new locations you're opening. Uh, and you can see, you know, the underlying numbers, there's not a huge amount of variation that you have in them. So like gross margin. Is yeah, it looks example. great. Yeah, looks like a company that we would uh like from like a variability standpoint, the margins, return on equity. Well, I only thought of it because we just were talking about Home Depot. Yeah. And uh, this is an even better business model than Home Depot. Not necessarily better, but um, so Home Depot serves everyone. Whereas, uh, although it has a very big professional um, aspect to its business, but how to join just serves professionals. So it's a, you know, they call it trade only. It's so. kind of like a Sherman Williams. Um, well, no, it's even more than that. Literally as a uh, homeowner, you wouldn't be able, you could only, um, get Howden joinery, um, products through a contractor basically. And, uh, you wouldn't see the price list. So the prices that you would see aren't going to be the same prices that they would see. They're extending credit to them. Mm -hmm. Those are the aspects of it that I like a lot. Um, in terms of a big focus on on um, uh, doing it that way, selling through that channel, basically, so that you're serving um, uh, people who are installing the cabinets and stuff rather than uh, the end user. Um, and th there's an aspect of that to Sherman Williams, sure. Although you can buy Sherman Williams paint. Mm -hmm. Have they created a lot of value? Why is a company that looks great on the surface, return equity numbers, revenue numbers, everything? Why is it trading so cheap? What's going on here? <laughs> uh, that's probably because I assume that analysts, I, this company's not like overlooked. It's a multi-billion dollar company, a um, few billion. Do they over-earn in 2021? Right. Yeah. So that would be the concern is probably, I would guess expectations, as they should be for Home Depot too, um, would be that earnings in 2022, 2023 would be the same or lower. Mm -hmm. um, probably lower because the same, well, although people don't like owning stocks that don't grow you know, even if it's only for a few years. But to be honest, if it was the same for the next two years or something, that's not bad when you have a stock at 12 times. No. Mm -hmm. uh, but even, if, they, inside, even yeah. if they average out 2018 to 2020, it's not, I mean, it's, there's a lot more expensive companies in the market. Yeah, it was a lot cheaper 10 years ago, though, unfortunately. That's when you originally um, looked at it, correct? Yeah, it would have been a good stock to buy when I originally looked at it. And um, why didn't you? Mm, well... It probably if it was a U.S. stock, I would have bought it. <laughs> but I don't live in the U.K., so I don't know enough information. Sure, it makes it tougher, yeah. It has a lot of information in the annual reports and stuff. The company has tons of information, and it's that sort of the opposite of an overlooked stock that way. Um, it says the share term is 120% on, which, you know, it's not low, but it's not crazily low, um, crazily high. Um, but for the U.K., it's a pretty big stock. Like it's got to be one of their hundred biggest stocks or something, right? Look at their shareholders' equities gone from seventy million to nine hundred ninety-two million. 
So yeah. like, is that like a way that you quickly eyeball to see if they've, I mean, more on that guy's question, have created value? Yeah, and whether there's a, this one, we were trying to say like, what could you predict for a long period sure. in the future? Yeah, so how do you get to that 10-year right. point? Right, I'm saying back that, that yeah. things like um, Howden Joinery, um, things like CarMart should be predictable if they keep, to, you know, there's cyclicality to it. It's going to have one year where the returns are better than another because of the the um, building cycle and stuff like that. But if they're doing the same thing with the same business model, repeating it, um, then you should be able to evaluate it. Just like we were saying with like tractor supply, could we have recognized that, you know, 20 years ago? If you went into a tractor supply 20 years ago and saw it, you could probably think the economics of each one they're going to add on after that could be similar up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would that be studying the unit economics of tractor supply co? I guess, although, yeah, I mean, they're going to tell you what they think it is, uh -huh. but we can look at one. Okay. Well, let's look at CHUY. Uh, there's going to be a S too, but don't what type is it? in the What's S. the ticker? UY. UY. Then just wait there. Chewies. So what is the ticker? The ticker is C-H-U-Y? That's correct. Okay. So this is one that's hard to evaluate from uh, the top. It, it says it was found in 1980 in, in Austin and stuff. That, that's all true, but I think it was taken over by private equity or something, I don't know, within the last 15 years, and that's when all the extra locations were added. So this is a company that really, its history only goes back to about what you see on this chart. Um. This is one that should be easy, right? Like the other two that we talked about. Sure, yeah. um, each location, they should be able to show you the unit economics, which they do, and we should be able to figure all that out. Um, I'm not sure. We have a mismatch here, which happens a lot. If you read what they say their unit economics are, what they should be, and then we look at the reported results that we have, you know. You're not seeing it? Well, the thing that's hard is, yeah, you're not really seeing it. So the thing that's hard is 2018 was kind of a bad year for restaurant stuff. Uh, 2018, 2019 were not good years. And then you have the pandemic since then, which made it even worse. Mm -hmm. So for certain restaurant things, you, you would see that. And then they're also growing pretty they're, – they're growing fairly rapidly, actually. The you know same-store sales growth at an existing restaurant is pretty low because once they open a restaurant, they're pretty full. Um, so you can see in the early part of that period – they're growing 30%, 18%. How much are they growing each of those early years till 20? 32%, 18%, 19%, 17%. More than 10% a year from Fast. 2012 to 2017, which means that the yeah. unit growth has to be, I would guess unit growth was like 7% a year plus, probably plus. They were probably over that. So they might have even been growing units by 10% a year. Um, but you can see that, like, for instance, earnings didn't really increase uh, by a lot of measures in the middle part of that period. So they're opening more stores and everything and more locations and nothing's happening, right? I mean, in terms of actual profit per unit, mm -hmm. probably peaks in 2015. There's some increase in 2016, but based on the percentage increases that we're seeing, I'm guessing that that's a decrease per unit. Definitely decreases in 2017. And then after that, each year after that was not good until we get to 2021. 20, uh, um, so it's kind of hard to evaluate. On the other hand, look on return on invested capital. It's increasing for much of that period. And... Because of the uh, first part of that period, the second part is bad. But if we look at the graph up top, it's easier to see this. Yeah. Um, so maybe something, you know, maybe the period that we see in between there is fine. When the rich returns are 10 to 20% returns on capital. Um, but these aren't amazing, right? Returns on equity, they're fine for a restaurant. 
the returns that you see there from 2013 to 2016, 2017, 2013 to 2017 are more like in line with what we'd expect for a restaurant. And you'd say, okay, well, they can add value if they keep opening new locations. And if I can get a good price, right? Um, and that may be the case. But you can also read like their investor presentation, all of that, and decide whether the returns could have been even higher. Um, they would certainly give numbers that I think would suggest it could be higher, but all restaurant companies so? do that. They give you like EBITDA type numbers that you can uh -huh. see there. Um, you know, the four wall economics and all that sort of thing. And they're going to be higher than that. Um, and I don't think it's a very big factor here how many, how long a location been open because I think they're very full from the time they open, same as Cheesecake Factory. It's the opposite of had in Joiner and Carmart, whereas they definitely are an immediate hit to earnings when you open a new location. It takes a while to build up business. Um, Chewy's and Cheesecake Factory for restaurants operate, I think, at pretty high levels of um, uh, traffic from the beginning. So, uh, and then you just look at like what the recent numbers are. So it, why is this important? So it looks sort of in between, not that important in terms of what we said with like return on equity. Um, we can look at the stock chart, but they haven't had much of a, they haven't had like as long as a history as a public company. Um, but it's important because if we know they're going to reinvest at very high levels. So we're at about the IPO price or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and they went public 10 years ago. Yep. A little less. 2012. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you don't see much of a pattern of creating a lot of value from that. If we look though at the quick FS stuff, we could see like whether they're increasing a lot of other numbers. Uh, let's see. We can see, you know, that obviously there was, um, they did have a pattern that I think through 2017 would have made you think that they were creating value. Mm hmm and so this is what we mean about like needing 10 years. I mean, gross profits gone from 71 million to 186 million. When operating I, profit 16 million to 45 million. Right. When I say, um, but you have this issue, which is you can see that as a 7% type EBIT margin, the business model works. Even a 6% margin might work. 6 to 9% works really nicely. Look at the years where it doesn't have that margin. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a problem you'll see with a lot of restaurant companies is how thin the margins that they're operating on that a few percentage point decrease becomes a big issue. It's meant to run on a 6% margin, not a 3% margin. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's making almost nothing when it has a margin down at 4%. Um, you can see in the early years, it has a margin in the six to 8% range for basically all those years. Um, but I, I brought it up because one, you could like learn about the, uh, economics, like you said, with which, whether you trust what the company says and believe they're going to achieve that and all, all of those sorts of things, but also because it might sound like 10 years, it's a lot of information. It's going to be more than enough for me to judge and all that. But here, is it because of what happened? Maybe not. In the early part of the period that we have from this company going public 10 years ago, they're a very small company growing very rapidly. A lot of economies of scale might not have kicked in. They're investing so much in growth. Um, it may be an unrepresentative period. So that's the first couple of years. So it may look great. Like look at the year over year growth. Uh, all those are 15 to 30%, you know. Um, these are probably high numbers versus what we would expect now. But then we only have a couple of years in between that and the pandemic. So the pandemic, we don't get to, really hard to judge based on the pandemic. And it's really hard to judge based on, I'd say the first three years or so of a public company. 
So you take those out and we're down to being trying to judge a company on like five years, mm -hmm. which we could take those years and say, this is what they're really capable of and just assume that's what it'll be when the pandemic, they get back from that, right? Um, you know, it might be, but it's just such a small sample size that we have. How much of this is really the company coming public at a pretty insanely high valuation? Just looking at some of these numbers, what they were doing 10 years ago. I mean, what so restaurant 10 years company ago, doesn't come public? Yeah, and I guess that's the thing. But when you talk about, though, like how entry price matters, mm -hmm. especially over a 10-year well, period. Well, let's go I over mean, some of those. I talk mean, the company's cre it's created you know, value if you're looking at it from, like I said, like a gross profit perspective, an operating profit perspective. Um, you know, cash flow has doubled, and the stock price is basically gone nowhere right um from looking at quick fs of course the timing could mean different things but i mean we have a market capitalization of 356 million 10 years ago and we're what are we at today like 427 million mm -hmm. so the actual underlying business has improved right. but the stock's gone absolutely right. nowhere so the factors that seem to be issues here are there's some decline in the multiple so like you said, yeah. it went public at too high a multiple. It's come down from there. So price to sales right now is what, one times? And it was started at two? Yeah, two times. Yep. It was two to three in the first two years. Four times. After that, it did, not re, it did not revisit those numbers. Yeah. So one thing it might teach you is avoid a newly public hot company in the first mm -hmm. two years or something. Because even just a few years later, you can get it at an appropriate price. But from like the company's perspective... They're like, oh, we could go public at four times book, two times sales. Yeah. Let's go public. Of course. Maybe this is what we need to be able to right. complete our you know, growth or whatever. Right. Then the other issue that happened was the pandemic. And that, and this is part of it. If we look at the um, shares, shares would be really good. So go down a little bit and we could look at, oh, that's good. Or you could look at the dilute share count. But anyway, the other issue that is that they issued a bunch of stock in the beginning when going public and stuff so that they increased their share count by like 30% or something. But then because of the pandemic, presumably, I don't know the whole history with the company, they same thing happened basically. So that's actually pretty meaningful because you end up increasing 40% or something over yeah. the 10 years. You, you increased about 6 million shares diluted on something that was 13 million or, or something like that. So we're talking 40, 50% type um, increase in the share count. And that combined with bringing down the, the price to sales from two to three to one yeah. explains everything. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So you increase the share count one and a half times and you cut the multiple in half and you're now looking at a stock that's gone nowhere for 10 years, even though it actually created a bunch of value. Um, and like, I shouldn't say created value, but it earned money. Yeah, like we can look at the cash grew. flow. Well, let's look at the cash flow statement to, to help out. We know this company was growing over time. This is growth CapEx. So... One way to look at this is the company was generating cash flow from operations in many years. In fact, in almost all years in the last seven or so um, that exceeded uh, CapEx. So it is generating some free cash flow all the time. Uh, you can see that when it makes like no growth, the cash flow is generating is like 30 million a year or something. Um, but even the period where it had the highest growth, uh, uh, highest CapEx, it still was basically self-funding. So even if it's not creating value, like getting to a much higher stock price it is generating earnings each year mm -hmm. yeah. cash earnings yeah. there's no doubt that there's cash earnings being generated by the business but the combination of more shares out and a contraction in the multiple is a problem um so you know if you're looking at going forward the two the obvious things you would look at now that we just said it is 
is there a chance that they're going to reduce the share count in the future? Because mm-hmm. if that changed, then you'd be excited about that. Which is what they did in 2021. They bought back 17 Yeah, let's look quarterly. Let's look quarterly, see what we've got going on here if they've been buying back. So maybe is it like, oh, they had to get to the point of being self-funding or being able to um, operate without external capital and now they're just going to buy back their own stock? It might be. I've also noticed that when your price to sales has been three for a while and stuff, you're thinking all about growth. Everyone's interested in, in growth. You've just gone public all that. When your stock is down and staying down for several years, you start to think this isn't working. This other thing we're selling. Well, so we're um, going on with Uber, right? It's all about yeah. free cash flow. Yeah. So um, they seem to have bought back $20 million worth of stock in the last quarter, if that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is, if that's from a particular person, because if not, that's a very large stock buyback. That's huge. Um, and doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because they that's actually all the cash that they generated in the last year, basically. Um, or last nine months. Let's look it up. So, Why not? let's look it up. Uh, look at like their 8K or something to see if they mention it. Uh, we can their earnings there. call. Um, but so the two things that you'd obviously worry about. Yeah, look at the eight. About the 8K, the, press, the, release. 8K, the press release. Yeah. So um, the two things that would be that could change that would be positive for you, right? Is okay. Is the multiple going to expand from one-time sales to higher now? And two is the um uh is the uh repur- are the repurchases going to happen instead of issuance so it just says that they had a 50 million repurchase program uh okay it says repurchase of the company's outstanding common stock will be made in accordance with applicable securities laws and maybe blah 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 it's just so uh, this says nothing about it yeah yeah. So the questions then would be like for your future is maybe your returns would be better if they bought back stock and if the multiple expanded. So that's the two concerns. Now. Uh-huh. So you can judge it. Now, obviously, you could say, okay, well, the last 10 years, um, even if we take out the pandemic, let's go back to the chart and see. Because even if we take out the pandemic, when did the pandemic hit? It was like around, it would have hit them around February 2020, yep. probably. Mm-hmm. Right so right there, their stock price was exactly at the IPO, basically, or pretty much. If we look a little bit below. Yeah. If we look, they seem to make the same low every single time <laughs> yeah. in this chart. I don't know why that's all that every like year and a half. It's the quants. It's they, the algos coming They in. hit the exact same point, yeah. which they're at now and which they basically started at or were at shortly after the IPO. Um so if they're basically, it doesn't matter because in fact, their share count went up a bit. So at this point, we're not even, they're not even lower because of the pandemic. So uh, you could say that right before the pandemic, they also hadn't really added value. So normally I would say, okay, because of the pandemic, we have to kind of say that we don't have enough information, but here it doesn't seem like they added value from a stock market perspective. But the tricky thing is two things happen that may explain why they didn't add value. Uh, I shouldn't say add value, but why you didn't end up with capital appreciation over time. One, price to sales, you know, multiples that mm-hmm. the stock's multiple contracted. Yep. And two, uh, share issuance. So they didn't keep their share count down. Uh, if they seem to be getting to the point where they were really interested in reducing their share count over time or making sure it didn't go up. And if you're getting in at a very different multiple, then it kind of fixes those two problems. Would you ever be interested in a company like Chewy's though, because they have issued shares in the past? I mean, is that just an automatic, you know, no go for you, or is it because maybe their capital allocation is changing? Yeah, now? if it changed, then I'd be interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could be very interested, and I don't necessarily would not necessarily want them to buy back a lot of stock. If, if we saw with this, if they're getting fifteen percent or something returns on cap uh, on equity, 
um, when they open a new location, then open a new location. Yeah. They're not that big because actually this doesn't, this kind of disguises it. They actually have fairly large, um, uh, you can go to their investor relations. It probably tells you, but, or actually just the 10 K will tell you, but it's actually quite high um, uh, revenue per location, especially for a Mexican restaurant. Uncle Julio's is higher, but um, I love Uncle Julio's. It's expensive. Yeah, that's a very expensive uh, Mexican restaurant. Uh, really. So if we look, we just look at how many locations they say they have. It should be right in the beginning of the business description. Um, Twenty nine. I'm sorry, ninety two. That makes much much more sense. <laughs> I was going to say they probably have about hundred. That's dyslexia, <laughs> about right hundred. Yeah. So that means that they're doing over. Can we see their sales? So just uh, if we go to quick FS. Uh, right. So sales were about 400 uh, million. So we know from that that they're they're doing a, a little over um, 4 million per location, what, maybe 4.2 or 4, 4 something. Um, because obviously there's some of those locations aren't, I don't know, some of those locations probably aren't counted in that year that I'm seeing, although that might not have been a big factor last year. Uh, it's really hard to tell because the pandemic decreased and then 2021 increased it that way. The other thing that's interesting, of course, is are they even at a peak sales level? I mean, yes, I mean, well, no, they're actually not. Uh, if we take the last year, they peaked in 2019. Yep, 426. Um, but like you take, I mean, it's one-time sales because market gap's 427 and we like to say, I like to take the past record number, but also with inflation on a real basis, if you were going to have as many people eating as much food uh, as you did in before the pandemic, and the question is why not? Why isn't that what? the world's going to be uh -huh, like, yeah. then just with the locations you already have, actually you'd be doing more, more sales yeah. than you have in market cap right now. Price to sales less than one. Now yeah, that's interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. Not overlooked. Not at overlooked. All. No. no, but almost Traded a micro a cap, I, you know, not really. I mean, the market cap is 400 million. What do they call Oh, you got to adjust that, Jeff. We're in an inflationary time. What, what would people call micro cap? 300 million? 350-ish. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but restaurant stocks are never overlooked. Well, we talked about Flanagan's. Yeah. That's kind of, but that's like just, and ARC is a little overlooked. ARC restaurants, yeah. yeah. Um, but ARC doesn't have a chain. It has no name that people would recognize. No. And Flanagan's only exists in one state, basically. Florida. Yeah. We know a person that went to their shareholder meeting, and he was the only person there outside of uh, management. Went to the Flanagan's one? Yeah. yeah imagine I'm not, that. I'm not surprised by that. Imagine that. But as you can see, anything that has like a name that people could recognize as yeah. a restaurant does not get overlooked. This is not overlooked. But it's only in 17 states. So there's people in the country that would not be familiar with. Yeah, the like I said, it's, it's only about a third of the country in terms of um, uh, the number of states that you could be in. It's got way more representation in like Texas. Um, yeah, I've been to them in Texas and Florida mainly. I've been to a few in each. Um so you can compare that with like the investor presentation, everything, get an idea. It, it's hard to say without looking at what, what caused the, um, the results that you're seeing in terms of the stock market performance. The issue that well, you I see think you here. Kinda, I think you just justified it though, right? Multiple contraction, yeah. issuing stock. But, but here's a good example that's really tricky, right? So operating profit. Uh, yeah, let's use operating profit. If we use annual... This is what I talk about with the beginning and end being very important. <laughs> so if we ended last year or the year before, you'd say that it's flat, that it had in fact gone up in the middle and mm -hmm. then declined. This is just absolute operating profit. Yeah. So in other words, the company reinvested a lot of capital and over an eight year period or so, increased operating profit, not at all. 
If you take it one year forward to today, yeah. to right now, uh-huh. it tripled. Yep. <laughs> if you triple over 10 years, that's actually a good result. Yeah. And that result alone is enough to say that you actually, if you do the math on that, that basically justifies a uh, market beating type return. Sure. So the difference between having no increase in operating profit and tripling, it's not really market beating for this company actually, because it also increased its share count by about 40%. If it had an increase in share count, tripling in in 10 years would be enough, in in nine years in this case. So what's the right number? Do you use this most recent year's number? Yeah, you'd have to figure out if they're over-earning. Well, it's like with every company. Look at the margin. Yeah, but I'm saying you look at every company. They're over-earning. Yeah, they are compared to other restaurants. I'm actually not sure they're over-earning. I think they're they're over-earning relative on each dollar of sales. I think their sales is below what it would be normally. And yeah, saying, is that is a normalized figure? Every company you look at, right? You could see what the price is. You just got to make sure if the E is actually the E going forward. Right. And in this case, the E might be the E going forward, but the the S is not. Yeah. So the margin is <laughs> going to come down, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll earn less. Their, their sales might be higher. Um, so it is a major con- concern is the the increase in the share count. However, it also matters how they did it. And this one might not be as alarming as some companies. There is some dilution over time, no doubt about it. But it isn't as bad as some companies we look at in terms of it all happening in one period. They diluted a lot with the pandemic and then basically bought that back. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, they didn't buy it back at the same prices if we look. (laughs) It seems that they issued, they've paid more for it than what they issued at. But, you know, it's understandable they needed the capital. but it's not like what we're seeing with like let's what was the one we looked at Twitter? What are other ones that? Yeah, Twitter. Okay, so Twitter has been public ten years, a little bit longer, mm-hmm. about ten years. Yeah, yeah. So let's look at their. Um, yeah. So one, some things you notice is one. I mean, it's very unusual if you see a company where its share count rises every single year by a meaningful amount. That really sends you a signal that the company is diluting all the time and it's going to continue to. We could also look at cash flow to give an idea. Um, you can see that they really didn't buy back at all until really recently. So those send a strong signal that there's going to be constant dilution there. Chewy's is not a good signal, but it, um, I, I think it's less indicative of that they'll always be issuing a lot of shares. Um, same thing with buybacks. Although people always say that they like the buybacks that are just a few years you know, like um, that they focus in and buy back at the cheapest price. Yeah. Those usually aren't as easy to predict for the future. Like if we do Omnicom, OMC, you can see why I would say that they probably buy back stock. If we look at the income statement, you can see the things that are useful. That share count fell every single year, except it didn't fall with the pandemic, but it didn't really rise much. Mm-mm. Didn't really rise at all. And so that gives you a lot more confidence that they're going to buy back stock for better or worse. Um it's just like, so Twitter is a good example of a company that you feel like they're going to issue no matter what. Omnicom is an example of one that will buy back no matter what. Chewy's is one you're probably going to get diluted over time. Um, but you don't know that the pattern is going to be the same, you know, all the time that way. And things might have changed. So you want to pay attention to their capital allocation in the future, like what they're saying about it and whether they've changed their tune on it. So is that reaching out to management, listening to earnings calls, I would investor presentations? Tra- yeah, I'd read the know, transcripts and look at the investor presentations, stuff. definitely. They made no real mention of it in that um, press release, which mm-hmm. is interesting. The best ones is when you notice they're buying a lot of stock and they aren't talking about it. Well, they said they had a $50 million program. Yeah, but you know, there's some that have, I mean, I was looking at one company that has a program out 
that I don't think they've, they've had it out for 10 plus years yeah. for eight. They haven't bought a single share <laughs> yeah. under it for like eight years, but, um, but they used to a long time ago buy back stock under it. So they also haven't issued shares. So that's interesting. Um, but like the, in that example that I was saying with that company, they will buy back if it's cheap, right? So like they have that out because if they get below book or something, they'll probably buy it back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but at normal times, they'll just pay a dividend. They won't buy it back. Most that's what you want to see. Most big companies won't do that. Yeah, but that's what you want to see though, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit more like a Berkshire thing where like if Berkshire got expensive, they would be 10 years, they wouldn't buy back a single share. And then they might buy back a lot. Um, yeah. What, you, what I'd most like to see is like a big announcement and like a tender and stuff. Because mm-hmm. if you really want to get shares, that's how you do it. Because you can get a lot of shares in like a tender. Um, uh, especially like today, I think that you could buy back a lot in a short period of time. Um, if you announced it and you had a lot of cash on hand to do it, but not a lot of companies do that, obviously. Got it. Cool. Well, I had, um, a planned podcast on settled industries. I'll give you a little sneak peek right here, but we're already at two hours. So we could, uh, where's this from? Revisit this. You'll just have to wait till next week. We don't know where this slide is from. We'll just have to revisit this next week uh, to talk a little bit more about it. But that's perfect because the best podcast, I always say, we start at home plate and we end up in left field. And we randomly get there because of a question like this that was thought-provoking and we spent you know an hour and a half going over it. So if you want to do this as well, have your emails potentially answered on the podcast, uh, email them to me, andrew at focuscompounding.com. All that we ask is that you put in the subject line, podcast, I will group them together and then I pull one um, for our uh, podcast once a week. I thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to check out all of our content. Follow us across all social media outlets, uh, really being YouTube and Twitter. We did have a Instagram at one point, yes. like three years ago. I mm-hmm. think it's actually on private now. <laughs> there, yeah. or there's just nothing on there. Uh, we're not on the Instagram craze. We're not all up on TikTok. Maybe we should be. I don't know. We could do... Uh, what is it? Is it YouTube Shorts? Is that what is there like Reels? Instagram has Reels, I TikTok know. has their own, and then I forget what the name of YouTube their version is of it. It's like their own TikTok. Um, but we, we don't just, have a lot of short content. So. No, we just upload <laughs> on YouTube and across all podcast app, and then on Twitter. So uh, to get access to that, just basically go to Focus Compounding, and you'll get everything uh, from there. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. If you're interested in our money management services, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusCompounding.com. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.